Welcome to the RHA Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is Meryn MacArthur, CEO of Virgin Australia Regional Airlines and CEO of Virgin Australia Cargo. It's wonderful to have you along today. I've known Merrin for a couple of years and I've really enjoyed this opportunity in sitting down with her and having a long talk about her career and the way that it has unfolded from her legal background to now CEO of what is arguably one of the best brands within Australia and a global context. Before I introduce Meryn to you properly, let me firstly introduce myself for those who are new to the Aratate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and I recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for my clients throughout Australia. If you have any recruitment needs within your business, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you and to see how I can help. Let me now get on and introduce to you Meryn. Meryn MacArthur has been the CEO of Virgin Australia Regional Airlines since April 2013, when they acquired SkyWest Airlines, a regional airline based in Western Australia, which at the time had a fleet of 36 aircraft and over 700 employees. Since July 2014, she has also held the role of Chief Executive Officer for Virgin Australia Cargo. She holds a Bachelor of Law and Bachelor of Arts and has also completed a graduate diploma in Applied Finance completed in 2009. Meryn lives with her family in Brisbane, Australia. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Meryn MacArthur. Hi, Meryn. Welcome to the Aratay Podcast. It's uh, wonderful to have you along today. I know that this podcast has been a long time in the making because we've had to uh, reschedule this meeting many times, but it's good to finally be here. Hi, Richard. Yeah, it's great to great to be here as well. I'm sorry that it's taken a bit of time to oh, get no worries. So perhaps just to begin with, uh, for the benefit of people who are listening, just tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. Okay, so I'm currently, uh, I've got a dual portfolio. I'm the CEO of Virgin Australia Regional Airlines, Mm -hmm. which is a regional airline based in Perth. It was formerly named SkyWest, and Virgin Australia acquired it in 2013. Okay. Uh, So we've owned it for now just on four years, and Mm -hmm. I was appointed CEO to integrate the business into the group Mm -hmm. and to uh, bring it back to profitability. Okay. It was unprofitable at the time. And then I'm also the CEO of Virgin Australia Cargo, which mm-hmm. is a new division that we established two years ago as a startup within the Virgin Australia Group. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's that's me. Oh, great. And just give us an idea of the sort of scope in terms of the number of people in your teams and, you know, some other sort of uh, uh, quantitative ways to understand it. Yeah, okay. So... For what we call VARA, which is Virgin Australia Regional mm-hmm. Airlines, a bit of a mouthful. Sure. Uh, we call it VARA, and it's we've got about 500 staff, okay. mostly of obviously pilots and cabin crew. Mm-hmm. We fly uh, 16 aircraft to A3 for the um, aviation people on the on who are listening. Uh, we fly two A320s and right. 14 F100 aircraft. The okay. F100 aircraft are the Fokker. Right. Aircraft. They're yeah. quite old, but we um, care for them very carefully, and right. and they're, they're operating really well. It's okay, primarily great. a charter business. Okay. Uh, taking the FIFO workers to and from Perth up to the mine sites. Okay, in sure. The northwest of Australia. Okay, great. And I know also um, you've got some uh, board responsibilities as well. Yes, I've recently been appointed the chair of Lifelight Foundation, which mm-hmm. is the fundraising foundation associated with Lifelight. Formerly uh, was CareFlight. Yep. Uh, it's the Queensland-based Aeromedical Rescue Service. So okay. that's really exciting. Obviously, it links into my aviation background. Sure. But also a great opportunity to uh, to have some 
involvement in a really important community uh, service. Okay, great. You've had a number of board roles in the past, but just one at the moment? Just one at the moment, right. yes. Right, yes. okay. In the past, I was, uh, I was a director of Queensland Rail when yeah. it first got split out into Horizon and mm-hmm. Queensland Rail Passenger Business, and I was on the Queensland Rail Passenger Business for three years. Okay, great. I'm sure uh, your day job keeps you plenty busy. Yes. Uh, so uh, no doubt having the one uh, not-for-profit board role in addition is more than enough. Yes, it is. With all my <laughs> travel commitments, as you can imagine, I Absolutely. spend my time between Sydney, Perth and Brisbane. Right. Okay, great. Well, we'll talk uh, more about that a little later in the conversation. Yeah. But, you know, for the uh, let's go back to where it all began and tell us a little bit about where you were born, you know, mum, dad, brothers and sisters and, and early life. Okay, well, that's going to take me back. So I grew up in a town called Mornington, which yes. is just south of Melbourne. Right. Uh, on the Mornington Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in those days, it was a pretty daggy, sleepy little right. town. Uh, now it's actually quite uh, quite popular. Uh, it's quite a tourist destination outside of Melbourne. A lot of great lot wine of comes from there, doesn't it? And yeah, the Mornington Peninsula has since become a big wine right. region, but not not at that time. So okay. I, I couldn't get wait to get away from Mornington. All oh, right. And what <laughs> as did a young par- girl. What did your parents do? So my father was an engineer. Okay. And my mother uh, was very busy in school committees. Oh right. I had two older brothers and one younger sister. So okay. There were four of us. Okay. And so you did your primary and high schooling there. I did my primary school in Mornington and I went to secondary private girls school in the nearby town called Mount Eliza. Right. So you didn't need to board you? uh... No, I didn't board. Okay, right. Yes. And when you were um, uh, going through high school and in terms of thinking about your future career, what were the sort of things you were excited about? Well, I did, it's a good question, I did a career assignment in what was Form 4 back then, so Year 10. Yeah. Uh, And we had to choose three careers. My three careers were... Uh, to be either a marine biologist, right, or a guide dog trainer, okay, or a lawyer, right. Wow, <laughs> very diverse. diverse. Yeah, sure. So uh, I ended up obviously being a lawyer, but, right? Uh, yes, uh, I still wonder about the marine biologist bit. I okay, have to say. yeah. And so, what was it that tipped you over into uh, the law path then? Well, uh, well, funnily enough, uh, I. Even though at year 10 I was interested in that, uh, as time went on and I got to year 12, my real passion was actually to um, to join the diplomatic corps. Right. Uh, I love travel, I love languages, I did an exchange uh, overseas in South okay. Africa for okay. a year before I finished school. Mm-hmm. And so that was my passion and right. what I wanted to do. So. Uh, I got the marks to get into law and I did study law, but I yeah. actually didn't in, t- in the end intend to practice law. But did you think that, that having a legal qualification would be a better entry point into a diplomat yes. uh, career? Yes, yeah. Right. So, and also back then we were all counselled that a, a law degree was really good right. um, background for multiple careers. Sure. So obviously a diplomatic call was what I wanted, but also for backup for other things as okay well. and did you have uh, part-time jobs when you were going through high school and university yes in uh high school i used to clear tables at a lo- local cafeteria right. and uh and i also had a job at the pancake parlor okay funnily enough initially i was employed at the pancake parlor as uh to dress up in uh, as the Mad Hatter right. <laughs> costume, uh, and uh, and that was going to be my job because I didn't have any waitressy experience. Right. But then they uh, they decided that they needed a waitress, and uh-huh. so I didn't get the Mad Hatter job in the end. Uh-huh. They gave it to someone else. So it's a funny intro. Yeah, I, we. I was only talking because uh, in Queensland it's called the Pancake Manor. Oh right. You know when I was. Uh, going through high school and uh it was really the only place that was open very late so if yes. you went to a party or something uh you yeah. would always end up at the pancake for manor. a double stack that's yeah. right <laughs> and so um and so university was in melbourne university was in melbourne yes. okay yes right and uh so having made that decision to study law but with a, a pathway to a diplomatic career what happened when you finished your university degree well, so I did law arts, okay. so and my arts were uh, majors were French and Italian. Yeah. So that again consistent with my desire to travel right. and the diplomatic corps. Uh, it turned out that I didn't really enjoy studying law. I found right. it very dry and boring, mm-hmm. and also I quite enjoyed the social life at university. Okay. So uh, as it, I, I got really good marks in my arts subjects, mm-hmm. but my law subjects not so good. Right. 
So uh, I decided after it was a five-year course in the end. So mm-hmm. at the by the end of the five-year course, I had pretty much determined I wasn't going to practice law because mm-hmm. I found the study of it so boring. Uh, at, but I applied to the diplomatic corps, and because I hadn't actually focused enough on my studies, I didn't get good enough marks oh. to get into the diplomatic corps. But I always right. have backup plans in these situations. If I've got an uncertain future and I need to make sure that I don't worry about it too much, mm-hmm. my backup plan was to be uh, a waitress or a tram driver. Right. If I couldn't think of another better career Not to do. Not a guide dog trainer. <laughs> Not a guide dog trainer, right. I know. So, uh, but I, I felt I'd spent five years studying uh, law, so I felt at least I should be qualified. And to be qualified as a lawyer, you needed to do what was then called an articles yeah. here, so a traineeship really, mm-hmm. with a law firm. Uh, and again, I applied for to all the big firms, but because I my I hadn't concentrated enough at uni, my marks weren't really good enough for the top firms. Yeah. And I eventually got an interview with a relatively small boutique firm in uh, Melbourne called Gillots. It was at that time, and okay. it specialised in defamation law and had a very high-profile high client in the Age. Uh huh. The and newspaper. The newspaper, right. yes. Okay. And when I went for the interview, the uh, managing partner who was interviewing me turned out he was a Rotarian. Okay. And because I had done a Rotary Exchange student, right. he didn't seem to mind so much about my marks. I think he took a more rounded view of my, right. of my background. And so I, I did get a, my articles there. And within six months, that firm, because it, it had such a high profile and a high profile client. Mm-hmm. Uh, it got taken over by one of the major firms that I got rejected from. Right. <laughs> so I ended up doing my articles with a firm called Minter Ellison. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so it's just funny how things turn out. Yeah. And so uh, during university you found law very dry and you'd made a decision you didn't want to practice law. And then once you started practicing law, you know, what changed in terms of your opinions? Yeah, so it turned out, I was a bit surprised, it turned out that the practice of law was much, I found it much more interesting, more suitable right. to me, because it, it was a practical application. Uh, back in those days, the study of law was quite esoteric mm-hmm. uh, and all about dis- dissecting, you know, high court judgments and minority judgments, which really don't have that much application mm-hmm. in real life. Once I got into the law firm, Uh, I realised there were parts of the law that I didn't even know existed. So Mm -hmm. negotiating and drafting contracts for clients and things like that, which I really enjoyed. Okay. It was sort of like, um, I guess, understanding the business of your Mm. your client and um, drafting a contract is a little little bit like putting together a jigsaw puzzle to Mm -hmm. make sure it all fits together beautifully and and achieves all the outcomes that the customer wants. Okay. So, so I, I actually really enjoyed it, and I and then I sort of progressed up through the law firm. So I ended up actually practicing for all up, I think, twenty three years. Wow, Richard. So after for someone who was a reluctant beginner, <laughs> and uh, what uh, uh, you made a move to Allen's. Uh, yes, that was still in Melbourne. Yes. So initially, I was at Minter Ellison. Yes. So that's I, I guess uh, an interesting story as well. So my first year. Uh, in so I finished my articles in litigation in Minter Ellison and then I moved into their corporate mm-hmm. uh, area, which was all big, you know, takeovers. And in those days, it was very male dominated. Mm-hmm. And as one of the few female young lawyers in that area, I didn't get any of the big cases. Right. And I got sort of put away in a tiny little room uh, with a file of what was then called shelf companies, so companies that are ready to be. Uh, taken by a new customer to set right. up a new business. Yep. So not very interesting work for okay. like filing. Uh, and I was very dissatisfied. And one of my colleagues at that time, who who was uh, a guy, said to me, "Look, if you're really unhappy here, you should apply for another job." Mm. And I didn't have a lot of confidence, but because he he sort of encouraged me to, I thought, "Well, I suppose I haven't got much to lose." And so I did, and I got um, a job with. Allen's, which was uh, really a much better fit for me in terms of uh, law firm. And so from there, I spent 17 years there. A better fit from a cultural point of view? Yeah, from a cultural point of right. view, yes. So yeah. what was different about them? You know, Did they really stand out from the pack in the way that they supported diversity, for example? Yeah, and I need to be a bit careful. We're talking a long time ago now, so sure. I, don't, I don't want to sort of suggest anything about Minter Ellison now or... Yeah. Um, uh, or how they are. At that time, it was Arthur Robinson and Hedwigs, mm-hmm. the Melbourne firm. And yes, it had uh, more of a... Uh, 
it was less blokey right. uh, at that time and less uh, ambitious. It was probably a more, in some ways, it was a more traditional firm. Okay. Uh, but that meant that they were very focused on quality mm-hmm. rather than sort of getting the deals sure. in. Yeah. And so uh, if you were good and smart and diligent, mm-hmm. then that was what counted more than what your gender was. Right. There were still, I have to say, there were still some issues and there were still what we used to call the blue files and the pink files. Yeah. So you still used to get the low... You know, initially you would get the sort of less sexy files mm-hmm. as a as a young female lawyer, but you only had to have a break. I had a break when one of my male colleagues, who was considered to be a golden hair boy and got right. all the good work, he went on holidays. So okay. a new transaction came in and I got it, mm-hmm. and I was able to prove myself. And then because really the partners were just looking for good quality lawyers, right? The fact that I was a woman became invisible. Okay. After Sounds that. just like an episode of Suits. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I uh, uh, gave a presentation recently on personal branding for professional success and the table I sat at was uh, a law firm and every single person at the table was a, a woman after, rather than one fellow. So obviously there's been a substantive shift. It'd be interesting yeah, to look at the statistics in terms of the student population what the percentage of male versus female is now? Well, for quite a while, even back in my day, there was close to 50-50. Right. Uh, and for quite a while, there's been more female yeah. graduates coming out of law schools. Mm-hmm. But but there has been a massive shift, particularly it seems to have been a, um, a real change in the last five to ten years in, in law firms. I think, I don't know what the stats are anymore, but they certainly have improved a lot since since my day. Sure, okay. My day. And, uh, <laughs> back, <laughs> in the, back in the good old days. <laughs> yes. And so, um, and that uh, your time there was always in Melbourne. Sorry. You, um, Alan's was in Melbourne for the yes. entire period. Yes, I was in Melbourne for okay. the whole time. Then. And yes. so, two thousand and four, you was when you uh, moved on to new things. What uh, prompted that? So, I, uh, two thousand and four, I had just turned. Uh, 40. Okay. Uh, and I still, even though I was enjo- I did enjoy my legal career and it turned out I was quite good at it, so I was, I was successful, I still really was wanting to get into business. Mm-hmm. I still preferred to be, uh, was, had a hankering to actually be making the business decisions rather than being supporting yeah. the business decisions. And so I wanted to, and I also saw, I guess, that... Um, my my colleagues around me, the partners who were about a decade older than me, 50, mm-hmm. in their 50s, started to get a bit disillusioned with their careers, uh, but they'd been practising for such a long period of time and they'd actually sort of built up all of their uh, liabilities, etc., reliant on their partnership right. income, yep. that they really were a little bit trapped. Handcuffed. So I sort of thought, I'm not. Firstly, I'm not going to make that mm. commitment. I'm not going to trap myself in financial liabilities like mm-hmm. that. So we, we were pretty um, careful with our money. We didn't go off and get sort of extravagant sure. uh, cars and houses and things to just keep a lid on it. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, I thought, well, I've got to. If I'm going to get out of the law practice now, now's the time when I'm mm. 40 before I get to 50. Yeah. So even then, at the age of 40, it was quite difficult because there's quite a prejudice if you've been. A, in a law firm and particularly a partner in a law firm mm-hmm. for a long time, just to move out as an in-house counsel in a company, they often have this concern that you will be too legalistic and you won't yeah. understand the business. Mm. So I struggled to actually even get an interview for a general counsel role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this role came up in Western Australia. I saw it in the paper one Saturday morning as Deputy State Solicitor of the Commercial Division in the State Solicitor's Office in Western Australia. And I thought, well... It's not really a general counsel role, but it's certainly outside of a law firm. Yeah. And it's commercial. So I had developed a practice of advising governments on major projects. I did all the privatisations mm-hmm. in Victoria back in, in those days and quite a lot of infrastructure projects as well. So I had a specialty in that area. And I thought maybe this would be a good stepping stone mm-hmm. for me to get out of a partnership and potentially out into the corporate world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a big risk. Well, not only that, but I mean, the reality is Perth is you know, a world away from a that's Melbourne, right. is it? Yes, that's right. So it was big discussions with my family. I had right. four daughters by that stage okay. uh, about transporting them all. We, we're actually away on a three-month sabbatical. You get a sabbatical okay. in went So we had plenty of time to think about it, talk about it. Uh, but I think in the end we just sort of said, you've just got to, you can't think about it too much. You've just got to take the yeah. risk. 
Uh, so it was an interesting conversation when I came back to the managing partner and said that I was leaving mm. the partnership and the partnership income to go and join the public service over in Western Australia. Right. He nearly fell off his chair. So it was a like, significant drop in my income, about a quarter yeah. of the income. But uh, but it was a great experience and and uh, it, it did turn out to be a good stepping stone mm-hmm. into what followed. Okay, great. So a couple of years in that role yes. and then uh, off to Rio. Yes, so then Rio Tinto approached me because they had a lot of dealings with the state government in relation to their royalties and royalty arrangements uh, Mm -hmm. for their mining um, sites. And they dealt quite a lot with state solicitor's office and particularly my division. So Mm -hmm. they poached me to cross the fence uh, and help them in their dealings with the state government. Okay. Uh, But the, the challenge with that, though, was that the... The man who recruited me, he created the role for me. He was the CFO of Rio Tinto Iron And he created the role for me because he felt that it was worth it. But then he, before I arrived, he was promoted up to London. Okay. So a new CFO came in and found me with a title called Chief Advisor Commercial Agreements. Right. And he was like, I'm not quite sure what her role is. Mm-hmm. So uh, he tried to give me work and tried to find opportunities for me, but... You know the pace of the organisation and and uh, making a break into an organisation like that when you don't have a really strong sponsor, yeah, uh, someone who's inherited me rather than someone who brought mm-hmm. me in um, with a with a mission. Uh, I found it a bit boring. So okay, yeah, uh, boring because you just weren't given the sort of. Uh, uh, responsibilities that you had expected through the recruitment process. Yes, yes, right. Okay, yeah. and I wasn't just wasn't challenged enough. Yeah, yes. I had a few interesting projects. Yeah, uh, but but I, I learnt from that experience that I right. do need to be challenged and very busy. Sure. <laughs> and uh, how did you find? I mean, you think you know a culture of a professional services firm, then into a culture of you know what is a public service department, then into an organisation like Rio Tinto. How, how did you have to sort of personally adapt in order to navigate through these changes? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And uh, the, the hardest jump was actually from the law firm into the into state solicitor's office, uh, only because, you know, in a law firm, the systems that you have and mm. document control and filing and all of that sort of stuff is just so, uh, so highly... Um, developed yeah. uh, and easy to use and controlled. Mm-hmm. So then to move into a government organisation where it's a little bit more haphazard and you have to sort of create your own files sure. and everything and then ultimately you move into a corporate environment and it's not really that good document uh, management processes at all. Yeah. So I found that really hard uh, and I had to really check myself quite a few times to sort of say, well, why aren't you, instead of to stop myself from saying, why don't you do it this way? Because, you know, that's the way I did it in, right. in my law firm and that must be the way you should be doing that's the, that's the best way. I had to learn to adapt to, well, you know, if this is the way they do it and they make it work that way, then I have to maybe change my approach and yeah. change my expectations of how things are done. Okay, sure. Yeah. So uh, Rio was a, a short time and then really that's when you stepped into a Virgin. Yes, Right. Yes. So yeah. how did the, that initial opportunity come about? Yeah, so again, I think I was just scrolling through either the internet or somewhere and I just saw the ad pop up. Right. It happened to be being uh, handled by a recruitment um, lady who I knew through the Rio Tinto role. Okay. So I just rang her up and uh, it was almost like it was written for me because mm-hmm. it required, it was not only, it was general counsel and head of government affairs. Okay. And because I had all that government background, right. that was perfect. Uh, it was reporting to the CEO, which was I thought was important from a general yeah. counsel point of view, and and with my ambition to mm-hmm. get into business and get part, become yeah. part of the business decision making, uh, and plus I really loved the Virgin brand and what the Virgin what Virgin had done to aviation sure. in Australia. So I you know I had a really good reputation as a very new, innovative, mm. uh, forward thinking organisation. So I thought it would be a really good cultural fit right. for me. It doesn't seem usual to me that you would have general counsel combined with a government affairs responsibility. Is that normal or no? Quite it's unusual, and I think that was a um, at that time Virgin Blue had a very small uh, executive committee. It okay. was Brett Godfrey was yeah. the CEO, and uh, they had a chief operating officer, a chief commercial officer, a general manager of people, and. And oh, obviously a CFO. Yep. And the legal and government affairs sat under the CFO. Okay. Uh, but he really 
you know, didn't like, you know, didn't have any interest in those two areas. Right. And I think they realised they needed to have a better focus in sure. those two areas, being a listed company and uh, and also the, the interaction with government you right. have in aviation. Obviously, it's highly regulated. Yeah. So, so they they needed to bring that skills in. Right. And, and I guess they just packaged them up together. But that's they had been looking to fill that role for over a year. Wow. Because there was it was so unusual to find some yeah, of the sure. skills. I uh, recruited a few years ago for a not-for-profit board that Brett Godfrey was the chair of, and I had the opportunity to go to his house, and uh, I've, um, I was very impressed. He seems like a genuinely lovely man. Yeah, yeah, he is. He was great to work for. He's very mm. down-to-earth and easygoing, lots of fun. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, good. And so um, I note that during that period you decided to go back and do some finance qualifications. Yeah, that was actually... I started that actually during my um, during my law um yeah, I started that while I was partner at the law firm, uh, and I stopped and started it over a period of time, depending okay. on the demands. But I did eventually finish it while I was at Virgin. So, so what was, was the intent? It was um, a diploma in applied finance, yeah. and the intent for me was uh, that I really wanted to have confidence in dealing with financial analysis, sure. yep. and especially, again, with my interest in business. Mm-hmm. I wanted to understand the language that they talked and, and understand how to um, do my own analysis mm-hmm. as well. So I, I thought about doing an MBA. Uh, yeah. In the end, after quite a bit of thought, I decided to do applied finance. I just thought that it was more targeted f- for the sort of business skills yeah. that I wanted to have. Yeah. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. Mm. It was quite challenging doing mm. it as, sure. as I was working at the same time, but I, I did enjoy it. And it did give me a lot of confidence. I've always been quite good at maths, mm-hmm. so I've been good with numbers, but it gave me the confidence to be able to talk the talk uh, and, and play with spreadsheets and mm-hmm. and really um, drill into the financial analysis when I'm dealing with finance people. Right. At what point do you think you started to conceptualise, well, I might like to be a CEO? <laughs> I didn't really ever conceptualise that, I think. Uh, I often reflect on this. I think for me... I'm just always driven by the next challenge. Mm-hmm. So uh, always I knew that I wanted to ultimately get out of law and, and get into a business role. Yeah, I wanted to get into a line management role. I felt like the legal uh, role held me back in mm-hmm. terms of what, what I could deliver and mm-hmm. uh, provide to the business. And so at each stage I've been given a new opportunity. I've grabbed it and, and loved it. and then And then you find yourself kind of like, potentially at CEO level sure. uh, and then that comes your way and you go oh okay that's that's exciting so I, okay. I never I probably would have never expected that I would have that, right. that title it's just happens to have I've stepped up up to that title yeah I find it interesting I've done nearly a hundred of these and uh, I would say there's a fairly even split between people who had a very clear sort of pathway and goal you know as to where they wanted to take their career and then other people who you know like yourself um opportunity comes they look at the opportunity for its own merits and it just kind of leapfrogs yes. you know till you eventually end up where you are today yeah um and looking back now do you think you made the right choice about doing your diploma of finance versus doing an mba i do actually uh and look i haven't done an mba so i can't really speak for what i've missed out on i yeah. suppose but definitely uh the applied finance course is really really comes in help help you know um handy every every day mm-hmm. in terms of doing the business analysis and for me to be able to i i really it helps me work through things uh because everything in business really is about profitability and mm-hmm. and financial outcomes mm-hmm. uh apart from the people outcomes obviously but uh, ultimately your goals are to achieve a financial outcome so i i do think that the applied finance uh diploma was was the best suited for me mm-hmm. the mba um from an mba point of view that would have required probably more time out of work and i yeah. haven't really had any time out of work as well it would be sure. harder to do that um part-time I think. Mm-hmm. okay and uh not long after that uh you stepped into your role as group executive alliance network and yield which is quite a mouthful yes uh, tell us a bit about that role yeah so this is really interesting because when so um as you know after um brett godfrey left John Borghetti came on board, yeah. ex-Qantas executive, uh, and when he first arrived, he sat down with all of the executives and asked us, you know, what our plans were, and mm-hmm. I, I was very open to him. I said, the reason I took on this role 
is that I wanted to have a broader broader portfolio than just law because yeah. ultimately I want to step out of law. Mm-hmm. So he then, uh, to his credit, actually piled on all these other portfolios to me. So for a little while you see my portfolio grew and I had strategic initiatives office mm-hmm. and corporate advisory and all sorts of other things, including my legal role. Yep. But then ultimately he, he had a need to split. He had a chief commercial officer role that he decided to split uh, to give more focus to the two commercial areas. Right. One was sales on the one side and the others was alliances, network and revenue management. So he asked me to take on that portfolio. Uh, I had already been doing the alliances side of things because um, as general counsel that's got quite a legal side to it and so I'd been kind of we didn't have any alliances capability in Virgin Australia so I pretty much was the lawyer and also the business person making the decisions at the same time so it was kind of a natural transition for me but I remember John sitting down with me the day before I took you know the I took the role on and said are you going to be okay are you going to miss aren't you going to miss the law right and I said, no, not at all. I've been waiting for this for such a long time. And he said, well, you know, you're going to have to be different. You know, you're going to have to be more positive, less negative. Right. And I said, yes, that's what I'm looking forward to. I said, the negative things are, that's my profession. As a lawyer, you have to be negative. Sure. You have to be looking for risks. You have to be telling people what they can't do. Mm. But I said, as soon as you take that responsibility away from me, mm-hmm. you'll see a very positive outlook. And uh, and that's that's what's happened. And that's it's really um, been a positive move for me. Fantastic. Other than, you know, changing your business card, were you conscious in terms of, okay, to make that transition well, I need to have some kind of, you know, personal uh, process to walk and work through to know that when I do step into that role, I'm going to really make a, you know, a success of it? Uh, Well, again, it was... It was a relatively easy transition for me. I mean, as a commercial general counsel and a, a lawyer in-house, you tend to work with the different businesses. Mm. And so alliances, as I said before, I was already pretty much running that area anyway. Yeah. Network management and revenue management are the two uh, areas that are really important to understand and learn about in terms of making applications to the ACCC and the US antitrust organisations to get the alliance approvals across the line. Yeah. So you need to understand airline economics, which is what those two areas are. Mm-hmm. So I had spent a couple of years working with those two teams okay. in developing massive submissions to the regulatory authorities to make the case that they should approve our alliances. So I already knew the teams and I already had enough of an understanding, enough of an understanding probably to make me a little mm-hmm. bit dangerous. Yeah. Uh, also economics, I, I did do economics at uni as well. So economics was also something I, was, uh, um, I enjoyed as well. So okay. it was, I felt comfortable moving to that transition. What, what I found different and actually positive for me, which was a bit of a surprise, was in moving into leading a team of professionals that weren't my profession. So when you're leading a a profession of lawyers, it's very hard to not get dragged into the detail and not to and not to over micromanage uh, because, you know, that's your profession. And so everything that comes past your desk is is something that you're actually trained to do yourself. Yeah. When you move into managing people who don't who have got an expertise that you don't actually have, it's I found it really uh, interesting and exciting and uh, to actually be able to lift as a leader mm. and become more you know more strategic and providing direction mm. rather than getting into the weeds and sort of mm. getting things done so mm. uh, so I felt like I became a better leader as right. a result I suppose that also requires a degree of vulnerability doesn't it you know you you're used to having you know walked the profession to be able to have absolute trust that people are doing their job well because you you know have that experience and when suddenly you're running people uh managing people that you don't really have that degree of certainty around um you know there there comes a state of vulnerability about being the leader and being able to say i don't know and being able to say i don't know and also trusting yeah that they're going to do you know that they're going to get the job done well uh, when you haven't got the expertise to fully assess that. So uh, so in, in relation to that second part, uh, I was lucky in that I inherited a team that were 
very high performing. Mm-hmm. So I and I'd worked with them before already, so I had a lot of trust in them. Um, and I, I mention that just because there've been other other roles that I've had subsequent to that where that hasn't always been the case. Sure. So so your point is absolutely valid that one of the hardest things for a leader is is to develop the trust yeah. and to have people around you uh, that you can trust mm. if, if you don't, if they're in an area of expertise that you don't have yourself. Mm. Uh, but the other thing to your point about being able to have the vulnerability to ask questions yeah. and ask the dumb question, to me that's the most powerful thing. Uh, mm. And I guess because as a lawyer, 23 years as a lawyer, you sp- spend your whole time sitting opposite clients going, what is this? What? How does a train? You know, how do? You, what's this particular piece of machinery right. on the train do? Okay. Um, because I've got to write it into the yeah, contract. Sure. So you ask the dumb questions all the time, right. uh, and it's to me, it's it's the most powerful thing. Firstly, it shows respect to the experts mm-hmm. that you're you're di- you know that you're leading, that you actually understand that they've got more expertise than you, and so you're you're seeking to understand. But also, I learn so much. I learn enough. Um, to be able to then give them direction. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. And then uh, stepping into CEO of Virgin Australia Cargo. Yes. So, um, you know, that must have been a very exciting time. A new business. Yes. You know, and a new substantive change in responsibility. Tell us some uh, about that. Yeah, so so this came about because, so for um, the VARA role, I... Uh, I commuted for two years between Brisbane and Perth. Okay. And that was because my family uh, had been moved twice already and they'd basically put their foot down and said, not now. And they were really at a stage in their schooling when it was not appropriate to move them. So I commuted for two years. But at the end of that two years, I said to John, look, I really uh, need to be back in in Brisbane, based Mm -hmm. back in Brisbane. Uh, What roles have you got? He said, oh, I've got this cargo division I want you to start up I think it's a great opportunity we'd previously outsourced cargo to toll yep and they which meant that they managed all of what we call the belly space so the underhold of the mm-hmm. aircraft uh, they managed all of that for us and we just got a slice of the revenue yeah uh, and so he wanted us to take back control of it and actually actively manage and set up our own cargo business so uh, initially I was a bit like cargo you know boxes freight is it very interesting but I thought well you know, that's worth giving it a go and, and it's an opportunity for move to me to move back to Brisbane. So uh, I said yes on, on the one condition. I really wanted to keep responsibility for VARA and by that stage I'd set up a good, strong management team in Perth. So I felt that I could manage them remotely by right. going backwards and forwards to Perth just once or twice a month, which I still do now. Yeah. And then set up the cargo business over here. So that's mm-hmm. how I ended up with the two portfolios. Right. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the car, it's, it's not just boxes. I mean, I suppose it is to a certain extent just boxes, but, but it's business and there's mm-hmm. different business metrics and I, I find it a fascinating business. And mm-hmm. particularly in the current climate with e-commerce and all of what's going on uh, in, in that space, uh, it's a really interesting time to be in cargo. Great. And so if you think, you know, about that time, VARA uh, 2013 and then um, Australia Cargo 2014, you know, in that period of the last sort of three or four years, if there was one particular key achievement you'd hang your hat on and say, this is something that I led or developed or, you know, that I'm really proud of, what would that be? Well, I think I'd have to say, right as we sit here right now, I'm most proud of what we have uh, what we have transformed VARA into okay. in four years, four years, because when we acquired SkyWest, it had a number of challenges. Mm-hmm. It had uh, a, an executive chairman who also owned a aircraft leasing company right. who leased aircraft to the, the airline, okay. uh, and his primary concern was around the aircraft sure. rentals more yeah. than the operating business, so classic conflict of interest. Uh, and so it had, had it hadn't had the investment that it should have had. It was still it was a fifty year old airline, mm-hmm. so it had a really strong, rich West Australian based heritage. Mm-hmm. But it was really challenging that it hadn't had the investment, and it was um, it had expanded rapidly rapidly at that time. It also had um, an East Coast operation on behalf of Virgin Australia mm-hmm. uh, of small <coughs> what we call turboprop aircraft, the ATRs, <coughs> and uh, it just hadn't kept pace with the rapid expansion mm-hmm. and complexity of the airline. So it was a great airline at its core, and its its main, uh, I guess, 
uh, jewel in its crown was was its charter operation, so su- supporting the resources market. Yeah. So uh, it wasn't profitable. It had a dysfunctional relationship with the regulator, CASA, mm-hmm. which is obviously not a good thing to have when mm-hmm. you're in aviation, uh, and lots and lots of challenges, which I had no idea about when I mm-hmm. walked in the door. I discovered quite, I discovered them pretty quickly. I got summons to the Melbourne CASA office within a couple of weeks of arriving, and they right. told me how it was. So it was a really challenging journey, and for you know the first year or so, uh, I remember spending many nights in my Perth apartment sitting mm-hmm. on the on the balcony you know with a, a whiskey just All looking right. out gazing out and thinking how um, how are we going to get through this yeah uh, we also so then of course the resources market declined and so that's what our prime market was mm-hmm. so we initially we had to invest a lot to bring new resources and people into the organization to build up their systems and processes with the help from the mainline business. So instead of uh, John Borghetti sent me over there to take costs out of the business, but instead I was ringing him up saying, actually, I need to spend more money on this business. Right. Uh, And then ultimately I decided what we needed to do because we'd just have to keep on spending money on it. We needed to simplify it. So we then moved on to a business simplification project Mm -hmm. and we we decommissioned one of our fleet types, one of the smaller fleet types in Western Australia. It was a small Fokker 50 Mm -hmm. aircraft that we had eight of and there just wasn't enough demand for Mm -hmm. them and they were um, really putting a drag on our profitability. So that could have lost 150 jobs um, across the business, but we managed to do it um, through redeployment and and attrition over a nine, 12-month period and we actually made less than 10 people redundant over that process. So it was a challenging time, but, you know, Mm. airlines have to be able to do this. They have to be able Mm. to change move with times so uh so there was that and then now i sit here four years on and we've just closed our accounts we don't actually report them separately but i can say we have actually we've had a wonderful uh profitable year uh most profitable airline in the group actually in in terms of margins at least uh and yeah it's it's a great achievement and and also on on time performance and safety kpis everything the business has absolutely outscored its its targets so uh i go over there and i spend time with the teams and it's it's just a joy to be Mm. able to work with the team and um and celebrate the success that we've had on that journey great that's excellent so looking to the future now you know if you think about you know, the future for Virgin over, the, say, the next five years, and also for yourself in your career, what are the sort of things you're excited about? Uh, look, I think uh, I've still got... Um, so Vara is... It's great to see. So Vara has actually just become profitable as the resources market's starting to return. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be interesting to see. You know, now we're going to be moving back into a growth phase. So mm-hmm. having simplified the business down... Uh, we're now going to be actually growing, but growing from a more simplified base. So mm-hmm. um, that's going to be exciting. Cargo business is just two years on, and we're, you know, we've it's been very fast ramp up, and uh, we're still bedding a few things down, and still not where we quite want to be. Uh, but so that's going to be interesting. Now I'm looking forward to seeing cargo business go from, you know, the challenging first couple of years to, yep. you know, the position I'm now in with VAR. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And uh, what are your aspirations personally in terms of your career? Ah, look, as I said before, and as you can probably see from my career trajectory, I pretty much just sort of take the opportunities as they yeah. come along. I don't really have uh, a big long-term ambition, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that's worked well for me so far. Mm-hmm. So I think I could go... There's, there's going to be a fork in the road for me. At one point, I think I would like to... Uh, to retire and have executive and well, semi-retire, I should say, sure. take have some non-executive director roles. Yeah, uh, I think I would. I, I've always liked being on boards, mm-hmm. and I think with my background, I've got um, I've got a lot of value I can add. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, that's something I've been thinking that that's five years away for the, probably the last ten years. Yeah. Uh, so I still think that's probably five years away. I still mm-hmm. think uh, I've potentially got another executive role in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just not quite sure what that would be. Right. Uh, because I love the leadership side of things. So the one thing that I, I think would hold me off going into non-executive directorship roles at this stage is that you don't have control of the strategy and you yeah. don't 
you don't get involved in leadership and I really like engaging and mm-hmm. leading people. Yeah, I meet with people literally every week who are looking towards a portfolio career and I think that you know if you've still got enough petrol in the tank and the excitement about having the ownership of running and delivering business outcomes then uh, you know the board career can wait you know there are plenty of yes. non-executive directors uh, in their 70s and the reality is we'll probably live to be yes you know yeah, 100, so yeah. there's heaps of time, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. Great. Yeah. And one of the main reasons for this podcast is for people who are aspiring to become a CEO or a non-executive director to listen to those who have walked the path before them and, you know, learn from their experience. So you've shared, uh, you know, some good insights in terms of your own development to CEO, but what are, what are some of the key learnings you've had along the way that you'd like to share in addition to what we've already spoken about? So look, I think for me, uh, it's really about grabbing opportunities when they present to you and mm-hmm. having the courage to do that, even mm-hmm. though it might seem a little bit scary and a little mm-hmm. bit out of your reach. Uh, and uh, because sometimes uh, in, earlier on in my career, I used to look back at things like, you know, I told you the experience about uh, joining a small law firm and ending up with the big law firm that yeah. I'd been rejected from, you yeah. know, and I, I considered that to be luck, you know. I thought I was just really lucky that that panned that way. And, and as I got more mature, I thought, you know, I think everyone, there's, there's luck comes your way, every, mm-hmm. you know, um, quite a few times during your career. Mm-hmm. And it's about, you know, whether or not you can actually capitalise on that luck. So, and, and when I say luck, it's, it's really opportunities. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, that people need to be open to opportunities and perhaps you know again for me I've taken some unconventional decisions I've Mm -hmm. taken some risks Uh, even in my law firm career I um, as a senior associate voluntarily decided to move out of my my um, comfort zone in corporate into banking and finance and the partners all recommended against it because they said it was far too high brow for me and uh, and uh, I said well you know I really wanted to get I thought that I needed to have that sort of experience to be well rounded mm-hmm. and it was great it was a great opportunity it was scary mm-hmm. but as each time I have taken on a challenge like that that has been scary it's given me confidence in myself mm-hmm. and so my confidence has grown and grown and grown the more times you challenge yourself and you manage to achieve mm-hmm. Uh, the more confidence you have in your ability to do that going forward. So that that would be the main things, particularly for a woman. I think uh, women can be their own worst enemies in terms of their lack of confidence. Mm. So they are the ones in particular I would encourage to really push yourself outside your comfort zone. There's so many ways and tricks that I've developed along my career about uh, helping myself not feel nervous about um, challenging things. So So what's one of those? Well... One of them is is really just uh, now, especially with Google, just getting in and doing all the all the background work. Sure. You can find out the answer to most things, yeah. uh, or you know, find people who you're connected with around the organisation and sort of uh, who are safe, who you feel safe yeah. with, to be able to ask the dumb questions, mm-hmm. so that when you're sitting in a meeting and you have to present on a topic. Uh, you're already, you know, you, you feel confident mm. because you've already done the, the homework beforehand. Mm. It's funny because, you know, that's such a simple thing to do and such common sense, and yet so few people uh, really innately understand that. And it's not until somebody says, you know, this is what you can do, that yeah. people start to, uh, you know, pick up those habits. Uh, one of the things I've spoken about quite a number of times on the podcast is the fact that I would say in 99.9% of occasions when we go to take a brief on a role with a client, they say we'd love a woman. And yet, when we take roles to the market, um, our average application rate from women is 7%. You know, and and there is a, you know, it's very much about looking at an opportunity and saying, okay, I don't have all of those skills, but I'm prepared to take a risk and put myself out there because the employer is really wanting to encourage that. So um, it's very, you know, one of the things that I, it's great for you to say today uh, is the, you know, this um, consistent advice, take risk, you know, within reason in order to, to get those opportunities because that traditional idea of the glass ceiling, in my own opinion, from my experience, it, it's largely uh, a historical, not perhaps completely irrelevant, but 
you know, growing even more irrelevant conversation. Mm, I think, yeah, depends on the sector, I think, but yes, uh, and depends on the on the level that you're operating at. Mm. But, uh, but definitely, I think, well, I mean, there's that famous old saying that a, a woman will look at a CV and go, uh, sort of a PD and go, um, I've got, you know, eight out of those 10, yeah. but I haven't got the other two, so I can't apply. And to be honest, I, I would still potentially do that. I sure. have to talk myself out of it. Whereas a bloke would go, well, I've got eight out of the ten, so obviously I can do the other I've got two. Three yeah. out of the yeah. ten. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> three out of the ten. I know. So it's you know, we're genetically or or mm. conditioned. I don't know which 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 it is, but uh, for some reason we do approach things in a different way, uh, and that that holds us back, which is a sure. shame. Yeah. Now we've spoken a lot about business today, but just to uh, conclude, uh, you know, when you're not at work, what are the kind of things that you enjoy doing on the weekends and when you go on holidays and so on? So, as I said before, I've got a family of four. I've got four daughters yeah. uh, and a wonderful uh, husband who, who's been the primary caregiver. So okay. we've broken the mould a little bit there as well. Uh, now, we've only actually got one of them living at home with us now. Right. So uh, I like to watch, you know, um, Grey's Anatomy with my daughter on the okay. weekend. Uh, we go for walks on the weekend as well. On holidays, I like to get the other th- three daughters are living in Melbourne. So mm-hmm. uh, I like to get the whole family together for holidays. And we all love skiing. Okay. It's quite an expensive retre- um, uh, pursuit, but we, we all love it. And I think it's um, it's a great family thing to do if, if you can cobble together sure. the money. So where, where do you like to ski? Well, we've skied in France and we've skied in Canada. Okay. We've skied in Australia and New Zealand as mm-hmm. well. So um, the girls are at me now to, they want to ski in Japan. Right. So, yep. And uh, your original study in, was it French and Italian? Yes. Have you maintained any kind of fluency in the language? Yes. Yeah, so I, part of the reason why we, we used to go skiing in France, we're sort of branching out a bit now, was because I wanted to... I wanted the girls and I to be able to get to speak French. Great, fantastic. Well, look, um, Marin, I really appreciate your time. Before we wind up, is there anything else that you wanted to add or anything that I didn't ask that you wanted to talk about at all? No, I think this is it's a great initiative, Richard, so congratulations on Fant- this podcast. Well, thank you very much and uh, have a wonderful afternoon. Okay, thank you. Well, thanks again for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Merrin. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week. Music.